Hello and welcome to podcast eight of the year. So I'm recording this podcast, uh, May's podcast, actually on the 13th of April 2019, which is the 100th anniversary of the Jallianwala Bag massacre. This was a truly shameful event in British colonial history. In response to peaceful protests and also to one unfortunate incident in which an English woman was attacked by a mob, the acting military commander for the region, Colonel Reginald Dyer, trapped 10,000 Indians, most of whom were religious pilgrims, in the bag, an area about the size of a football pitch. The crowd was unarmed. They were, however, in breach of an order that had been issued that morning for there to be no group gatherings in the city. Many people didn't know about the order, and even if they did, it cannot begin to explain Dyer's actions. He blocked off the five narrow alleyways into the bag and lined up his troops on the wall above and ordered them to open fire into the crowd. Around 1,000 people were killed, either from bullet wounds or from being trampled to death as people desperately tried to flee the scene. The total number of casualties and the injured is not known. Later that same day, the new king of Afghanistan declared a jihad against the British and in support of the tribes of the northwest frontier, which led at the start of May to the Third Anglo-Afghanistan War. This podcast will be published on the 6th of May, which is the 100th anniversary of the official start of that war. The episode takes place at the beginning of the war and revolves around a young British officer, Captain John Morris. The British Army had its fair share of officers who were brutal racists like Colonel Dyer, but it should be remembered that it also had some intelligent, culturally sensitive and compassionate men like Captain John Morris. So here it is, episode 8 of the year, May 1919, John Morris's Indian Holiday. Have we vanquished an enemy? None but ourselves. George Mallory. John Morris was not obliged to enlist in the army because of his appalling eyesight, but by 1916, sheer boredom with his bank job propelled him into the recruitment office. He had virtually none of the checklist of qualities that it was believed necessary to have to be a leader, yet by dint of his parents' status in the world, he was instantly made an officer. Morris had never been particularly good at sport. His only physical asset was that he was pretty good at grappling at close quarters. Because of his myopia, he had been mercilessly teased and bullied all through his schooling. It was something of a school tradition by his second year for anyone and everyone to steal his glasses, rendering him virtually blind. Not being a very fast runner, the only hope he had of not being plunged into a fog for the rest of the day was to be quick enough to grab onto his assailant before he was out of arm's reach and grapple his glasses back. His target was his glasses, so normally he received various blows before he got them back. So, as well as some skill in wrestling, he had also developed a pretty impressive pain threshold, both external and internal, by virtue of his expensive schooling. A schooling that aimed to churn out fine physical specimens who could endure hardship, follow orders and know their entitlement in relation to the lower classes, Johnny foreigners and the wogs of this world. John was only really a success in the first category and if truth be told, he liked the lower classes, Johnny foreigners and the wogs of this world a darn sight more than Englishmen of his own class. 
However, his failure at living up to the social myopia of his class and his own actual severe myopia didn't stop him from being a success to his and everyone else's surprise as an officer in the trenches in Flanders. Morris's kind personality was both liked and respected by the men he commanded. Many of them were veterans of the trenches and his respectful hands-off approach to leading them was appreciated more than if he had adopted iron-fisted bravado. And this appreciation of his non-leadership was reinforced by genuine admiration for his bravery when his unit had stormed the German trenches at the Battle of Pilkham Ridge. In the muddy, foggy mess that belonged more to midwinter than the height of August, Morris had managed to bayonet the machine gunners who had been inflicting total casualties on the British. For this conspicuous and observed act of bravery, Morris received a medal that at this moment, viewing the carnage that was right now in front of his eyes, Morris felt was undeserved. Back then in the trenches around Pilkham Ridge, it had been darkness and confusion. It was much easier to be brave in the darkness. Now there was no cover of darkness. The full glare of the Asian sun burnt through the crystal clear mountain atmosphere to illuminate fully to him every conceivable detail of the horrific scene in front of him. Before the Great War had even ended, Morris had signed up for the Indian Army. The recruitment brochures that had been distributed in the drab muddy dugouts to all junior officers painted a picture of regalese with servants, dances and long evenings on the mess veranda. Morris knew that this was almost certainly not true, and even if it was, it wasn't what led him to join. In fact, it was the most off-putting part of it for him. He had decided to go to India because he just couldn't imagine going back to Britain. Going back to that bank, going back to being bullied by his parents, who would be lining up a series of eligible women for him to reject. For Morris knew that he was gay, not gay like the other boys from his school, where homosexuality had been as institutionalised as bullying, sport and caning. Morris was really gay. He marvelled at how most of his schoolmates had graduated from university and immediately their homosexual life was compartmentalised and buried as they took up their manly duties of siring the next generation of British leaders. Morris had forced himself to try. He had visited a prostitute once, before he headed to the Western Front, but the moment she laid her hands on him, he had bolted for the door. Those embarrassing 45 seconds in that room was the sum total of his experience with the opposite sex. The reason he had come to India was because of its vastness. Surely it was big enough for him to be unnoticed, and surely it was big enough for him to find something of value to do. But as he stood there, taking in the sight in front of him, shaking uncontrollably, the stench of his own faeces starting to penetrate through the haze of his shock and fear, he was pretty sure that he hadn't come looking for this. Sir, Saib, we have to go, a voice said to him. He stood frozen, unable to look away from the sight in front of him. The men, his men, boys really, were strewn all over the ground, their genitals ripped off and roughly shoved into their mouths. After two years on the Western Front, Morris couldn't have imagined that there was anything left to see that would be worse. But here he was, half a year after the war to end all wars had ended, fighting what very much seemed to be a brutal war with Waziri tribesmen on the amorphous fringes of British India's northwestern frontier. He didn't understand the Waziris. He understood the Nepalese. He understood the Indians. He even understood the Tibetans. 
and in the space of a year he had learned more of their languages than he had the tongues of Europe in a decade of schooling. He had even started learning Afghani and Pashto, but it didn't help him one jot in understanding who these tribesmen were. Standing there, taking in the horror, Morris knew he didn't want revenge. He didn't want to get even. A feeling that had boiled up inside him against the Germans when he had witnessed his men being mowed down by Hun machine gunners. No, now his feelings was that he wanted to leave the Afghanis, the Pashtuns, whichever one these were, well alone. They don't want us here, and I don't want to be here, and I can't see anything much of value to be defending here, he thought to himself as he looked out over the barren, orange-brown, dusty, craggy mountains surrounding the orange-brown, dusty plain that he was standing on. To the south, to the east, there was a vast continent of wealth and culture and beauty that he could understand wanting, coveting, defending. But what could there possibly be here that made this worthwhile, that justified seeing these young, inexperienced boy men emasculated and bloody and covered in flies? Later that day, Morris found himself back inside the compound at Razmak. He retreated to his room and sought solace in his books, but this usual source of escapism escaped him. Towards nightfall, a swarthy young British officer knocked, barely, and strode into his room. Heard you got a bit of a fright out there, old boy. Name's Geoffrey. Marched in today, just arrived. Morris had heard of this man, Geoffrey Bruce. He was the nephew of the infamous Brigadier Charles Bruce, whose reputation was such that it cast a shadow over the whole of the British Raj. And while Morris had only been in India a year, in which time Bruce had still been in Europe, Morris was aware that the younger Bruce was doing his best to forge his own Raj-sized shadow. Bruce, like Morris, had been awarded the Victoria Cross for conspicuous bravery in the Great War. He, unlike Morris, was also a champion pig sticker. Prowess in armies has always been judged by one's achievements in sports, past or present, and the British Indian Army was no exception. They had come up with a new yardstick by which manliness should be judged, and this was pig sticking. India was home to a particularly vicious variant of wild boar, and the aim with pig sticking was to spear the beast cleanly through the heart from on top of a galloping horse, and well, this man in front of him had come second in the All India Championships and was therefore at the other end of the spectrum of manliness to Morris in the eyes of the world they came from, despite their matching war medals. My Gurkhas are marching up from Karachi. They'll be here in a day or two, and then we'll take the measure of these devils, Geoffrey Bruce bellowed cheerily. Can you believe some new stiff, John Thomas somebody or other, was going to send the fifth up here? Any fool knows that regiment is half packed with Pashtuns. Imagine that. They'd be spotting their cousins across the way, shoot us in the back and then melt into the mountains. Bruce gave a chuckle at this thought and absently looked over the books laid out on Morris's bed before pushing them aside to make her space for him to sit down. Luckily, they brought Barrett back out of retirement and he put things straight. That's the trouble, isn't it, Morris? Too many leaders made it through, didn't they? Not like us, eh? Geoffrey Bruce was looking at him requiring an answer. No. Morris concurred. This was sufficient and Bruce charged on. Should have had them in the front line. That would have changed their bloody strategy sharpish. Yes, it would. Morris concurred again, judging that Bruce was the kind of man who liked being agreed with. 
So now they have a surplus of old duffers and they fob them off onto us even though they've never set foot in India and can't tell the difference between a Bengali and a Baluchi. Sorry, I know you're new here. I'm not talking about the likes of you and me. That's all right. It's the stiffs. They should know the country. That's what I mean. Bruce contorted his big featured face into a warm smile towards Morris. At school, Bruce would have been the kind of boy who would have been stealing his glasses, Morris thought. But after the Great War, the former distinctions mattered little. What mattered was that there were those who were in the war and those who weren't. And among those who were in the war, there was a further division between those who had seen frontline action and those who hadn't. And the world was re-evaluated thus. In this new world, Bruce considered Morris to be cut from the same cloth. There was even no shame in Bruce's eyes in Morris having frozen in the face of the enemy's brutality. All frontline soldiers knew that even the bravest soldiers could be broken by the experience of modern war. The test of toughness was pulling yourself together again afterwards. It was May 1919 and many of the crack troops of the British Indian Army, or what was left of them, were still making their way back from the European and Middle Eastern stages. So the Afghanis and the tribes of the Northwest Frontier had been initially successful in this third war between the Afghans and the British Empire. The Afghans had been taking advantage of the relative weakness of the British. Morris had been commanding a battalion of novices, quickly rushed into the field in the absence of experienced troops. Morris's troops were no match for the tough mountain men of the region, raised in continual tribal skirmishes and raised in a lifelong resistance to the British, who failed to understand that it just was not in the soul of the men of these parts to be subdued. But Bruce's 2nd Gurkha Regiment was a different story from the untrained boys that Morris had seen slaughtered that day. The Gurkhas were men from mountains even wilder and tougher than these and they were men hardened in the brutality of desperate battles against the Ottomans and the Austrians and the Germans. They were also men in no mood for being kept away any longer from their homes. In what would turn out to be a classic British understatement, Bruce quipped to Morris, We will show those blighters what's what. Don't you worry yourself about it. With that, he patted Morris on the shoulder, rose up from the end of the bed, and left Morris to his books. Afterward, the what's what that Geoffrey Bruce referred to turned out to be a wholesale massacre of all the men in the surrounding villages, all mutilated and left out in the open as Morris's troops had been. The severity of the attack by the second Gurkhas shattered resistance and it started the march towards the retaking of the fort at Wana, the border outpost of British India that had fallen in the first battle of the Third Anglo-Afghan War. Bruce and his battalion exhibited a level of brutality that even shocked a hierarchy that thought little of ordering its men to open fire on crowds of peaceful demonstrators. However, public opinion in India and Britain was moving against such heavy-handedness. One of the events that sparked the Third Anglo-Afghan War was the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre on 13th of April 1919, where British troops had mown down over a thousand pilgrims and non-violent protesters in their place of worship. Bruce and his troops were honoured and hastily relocated lest their actions attract the same kind of uproar that was still swirling around Colonel Dyer, who ordered the shooting in the Jalimwala Bag. Dyer, also a successful military leader during the Third Anglo-Afghan War, was struck off the honours list having been about to receive a knighthood, and deprived of his command as a result of the findings of the Hunter Commission's inquiry into the Jalimwala Bag massacre. 
Dyer only avoided a prison sentence because those above him in the chain of command were also heavily implicated in the action. The King of Afghanistan, Amanullah Khan, had only seized the Afghan throne weeks before the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. His position was rather shaky as the third son of the recently shot King Habibullah, especially as Amanullah was widely suspected of being involved in the assassination of his father. So, viewing the instability across the border caused by the Jallianwala Bagh incident and the plummeting popularity of the British amongst the local population that resulted, and cognizant as a highly educated and internationally aware young man that the British Indian Army was still largely located in Europe and the Middle East, Amanullah launched a war against the British to unite his people under him and consolidate his tenuous hold on his country. While he decisively lost the war, the subsequent peace agreement, the Treaty of Rawalpindi, in which the British recognised Afghanistan as an independent country for the first time ever and relinquished Britain's right to dictate Afghan foreign policy, was seen by Afghans as a resounding success for Amanullah. To this day, the 16th of August, the anniversary of the signing of the treaty, is still celebrated as Afghan Independence Day. John Morris would meet Geoffrey Bruce again on the second expedition to Mount Everest in 1922, where they were both organisers and translators for the trip. John Morris remained in an organisational capacity throughout the expedition, but because of ill health among the designated mountaineers, Geoffrey Bruce was invited to join the mountaineers. He in fact, along with George Finch, set the world height record when they got to 8,300 metres, only 520 metres below the summit. It was the first time Geoffrey Bruce had ever climbed a mountain. By the time of the 1922 expedition, Morris was fluent in both Tibetan and Nepali and was deeply influenced by the culture and religion of these people. In the 1930s, Morris resigned from the army, travelled extensively in China and Japan, learning the languages of both cultures. He returned to the army during World War II and then became the East Asia correspondent for the BBC, rising in time to be the controller of the third programme, precursor to Radio 3. The third Anglo-Afghanistan war, in some ways, was an exception to the wars of intervention by first the British, then the Russians, and in recent years, by the Americans. Most of those wars involved the invading forces quickly inflicting a defeat on the Afghans, but then, if they tried to stay and control the situation, getting bogged down in a costly and unpopular guerrilla war. The Third Anglo-Afghanistan War started out in normal fashion, with the British inflicting a swift defeat on the Afghans. However, in the subsequent negotiations, the British gave up on what they had always fought to keep hold of, control of Afghanistan's foreign policy and control of their leader. While Britain was in 1919 either reaffirming or in some places actually extending its empire, this was a rare instance where they relinquished some control. It is not completely clear why they did so. My view is that it was because of the civil war in Russia. Britain's 100-year obsession with having control of Afghanistan was mainly to block any potential encroachment on British India, the jewel of the empire, by the expanding Tsarist Russian Empire. Whatever the reason, Afghanistan was without foreign intervention for the next 60 years. In that time, there was a constant conflict between traditional forces and progressive forces within the country. Unfortunately, Afghanis wouldn't be allowed to work out these internal tensions among themselves, as outside forces came crashing back in 40 years ago and have been there ever since. <laughs>